and welcome to Murder and the Look. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. Oh boy, today's a big day. Yeah. <laughs> We're covering our first book, and it's a doozy. Green River Running Red by Anne Rule. So remember when I said I have the too much gene? This is what I'm talking about. Like, sure, cover the most prolific serial killer pretty much of all time with a victim count of at least 49. Yeah. Great idea, Tara. Great idea. Yeah. First one. Right? <laughs> uh, before I started writing this episode, I was like, why do we rarely hear about this case? I mean, like, yeah, we all know about it, but I feel like not a lot of other podcasts cover it. And I really, felt that too. really dive into it. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, we all know, like, it was just this dude and he killed a lot of people. But nobody ever really jumped into it. And before, I was like, well, it's probably because he is a boring dude. Like, he's just so normal that it's boring. And his victims, well, they're all sex workers. So, unfortunately, the media doesn't care as much. Unfortunately. Yeah. But now that I have written this episode, I'm like, hmm, maybe it's because it is so much. So much. There is so much detail, so much stuff to cover. Maybe that is why... It doesn't get talked about as much. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm excited to talk about it. I am too. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. Like, I didn't really know much about the case beforehand, just the small details, and holy crap, there's so much stuff. So much stuff. Yeah. But anyways, I digress. Hopefully it don't bog you down with too much detail, but uh, I think it's all really important stuff to mention. Yes. A quick recap of how this works. We will discuss our thoughts on the book as well as the important details. So if you want to read the book and don't want spoilers, go do that first. Go do it right now. <laughs> Otherwise, if you just want to hang out with us and talk about murder, come on in. We have one. <laughs> and on that note, grab your glass, get cozy, we're going to book club it up. Yeah, we are. So like we said, the first book that we're covering is Green River Running Red by Anne Rule. Michelle, you were the first one that started reading this book back before this whole podcast thing even began. So do you remember why you chose the book? Yeah, um, I chose it because I didn't know much about it. Like, yeah, yeah like, exactly. <laughs> he's, everybody knows about the Green River Killer, but they don't know about the Green River Killer. Um, yeah. And I really enjoy Admiral's writing. So it was really kind of an easy choice. Yeah, totally. I was, yeah, I was pretty excited when you picked this book because I was like, yeah, I do want to know more about this. Yeah. Like, why not? <laughs> I was so happy I picked it. Yeah, it's great. So I'll just tell you a little bit about the book before we like deep dive into it yeah. and go through all the details. So um, this victim-focused book follows the destruction and overwhelmingly frustrating case of the Green River Killer. Um, he terrorized sex workers and public investigators in Seattle in the early 80s. It follows the Green River Task Force from its inception through many staff changes and budget cuts and media challenges until the eventual capture of the killer in 2001. The book is written with insider info only, like Anne can get, and keeps you in suspense with the desire to keep turning the pages until you find out all of the things. All of the things. And speaking about Anne Rule, about the author reads, Anne Rule wrote 35 New York Times bestsellers, all of which are still in print. Her first bestseller was The Stranger Beside Me, about her personal relationship with infamous serial killer Ted Bundy. A former Seattle police officer, she used her first-hand experience in all of her books. For more than three decades, she was a powerful advocate for victims of violent crimes. She lived near Seattle and passed away in 2015. She's a hero. She is a legend. I love her. Like, I'm just kind of more newer to the whole book book thing, like mm-hmm. true crime, obviously, but like haven't gone too far into reading all the books. But like, 
immediately you can tell she's like top of the list amazing 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 true crime writer and the fact that she has so many personal connections i know like it's insane the connections we talk about in this one are yeah and we'll get there terrifying Uh, not there yet but we'll get we'll get there but yeah we did read um the stranger beside me yeah and i'm sure we'll cover that as well because i love it yes and yeah we did say in the last Episode. That's how we got started. That's it's how because we, of her. Yeah, exactly. And she's got a couple other ones that we want to read. Oh as yeah, well. so like, there's more on the list. So we're looking forward to that. Um, so let's first talk about um our first impressions of this book. So how did you feel when you first picked it up and flipped through it? So for me, the book was a nice size. It fit well in my hands and wasn't too heavy. This is important because I'm in bed. <laughs> um, I'm a mom of two littles, and that's the only time I have to read. So um, there's nothing worse than a heavy book falling on your face. <laughs> <In there. laughs> but the first thing about the book that caught me was there's four pages of victims' photos. Yeah. Like, I just got the chills right now yeah. thinking about it. Four pages. I, it just made me think, holy shit. There's really not much else to say. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So for me, uh, at first I didn't find the title or the cover too captivating, but it's definitely grown on me now. I've spent a lot of time with this book. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, we started it uh, two months ago, at least. Three months ago. Yeah. Three months ago we started this book. Mm-hmm. And now that it took that long to read it, it's just like, oh, podcast idea, blah, blah, blah. Might as well cover this book. So yeah. I spent a lot of time with this book. And so that's definitely grown on me. I like the size and the feel of it overall as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like I like Michelle said, when I started flipping through the pages, I had the same reaction. It was very apparent that there would be a lot of victim focus in this case. And yeah, the first thing that caught my eye was the, the photos of the 47 women. It's like yeah. you said, four pages. Um, and looking at each one of them honestly hurt my heart. Um, so much. It's like, like for real. These are somebody's children. Oh yeah, it makes you remember that they're not just names in a story. Each one of them is as human as you or I. Yeah. And it takes a lot to hurt my heart. Yeah. We work in an industry that's really hard on the heart. We're so pretty jaded. Yeah. Pretty jaded. So it was like, damn. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and so the victim focus beam was kept throughout the book. It was really clear that Anne Rose, it was an Anne Rose intention to humanize each and every one of them. So even though we won't go into great detail for each of the victims, we do think it's important to mention each and every one of them as Anne Rowe dedicated the majority of this book to tell their stories. And like Tara said, she dedicated it. So let's read that dedication. Mm -hmm. In memory of all of the lost and murdered young women who fell victim to the Green River Killer, with my profound regret that they never had the chance to make the new start so many of them hoped to achieve. Speaking of hurting my heart. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Here's where we start the actual book. So now we'll be providing the details of the case using the Green River Running Red as our guideline. Just note that we will still be discussing the author in at least the first little bit here, as it's important for establishing the beginning of the story. So in the introduction, the author doesn't begin with the story of GRK, but instead talks about her relationship with Ted Bundy. While writing the book, The Stranger Beside Me, she tried not to include herself as part of the story, but she couldn't continue that for long because she was a part of the story. So just like in that case, she too had connections to the GRK case, and she was a part of the story she was telling. Anne lived in the Seattle area near locations where the bodies were found, and she discovered connections between victims and people she knew, and she unknowingly shared the same room as the killer. Ugh. He read her books, and she later discovered that he had attended her book signings. 
I hate that. I got chills again. This never happens. I hate him. Literally, chills through my body. Yeah. Oh, that's so creepy. And I think she even mentioned saying, like, we should be doing these press conferences or she'd be talking about a new book. Yeah. And people would always ask about the Green Mother Killer. And she's like, oh, yeah, you know, never know. He might be in the same room as us. Kind of like, yeah. ha But he was. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. So the summer of 1982 is where it all started when Anne recalled a particular article in the local news about two young boys that had found a body of a woman floating in the Green River under a bridge in Kent, Washington. And I looked it up on a map. It looks like it's just south of Seattle. I mean, it all looks connected to me. I'm mm-hmm. not a city person, but it's like right there. Mm-hmm. Um, the body had been in the river for days with her arms and legs bound. The King County Medical Examiner confirmed what police were already suspecting. The victim was already dead when she was put into the river. She had died by strangulation, which we will see over and over. Although missing for days, no one had come forward to identify the woman. Fortunately, though, the description of her tattoos were released to the paper, and the artist came forward as he recognized his work and knew who the tattoos belonged to. He identified 16-year-old Wendy Lee Coffield. Upon finding her mother, detectives learned that the young girl was a sex worker. Wendy had an unstable home life. She was going down a long path and dropped out of junior high. Unfortunately, situations worsened when Wendy was only 14 or 15 years old and she was raped while hitchhiking. This, of course, changed her and her problems. Of course. Of course. That's oh. awful. Sweet. Yeah. So theft landed her in a juvenile detention center in Tacoma, and then she went into a foster home. She was a chronic runaway, so when she didn't return from a 24-hour pass on July 8, 1982, no one went looking for her. Her body was discovered by those boys a week later on July 15th. Those boys. Oh, could you imagine? No. Oh my god. Oh. Yeah, that stuck with him for a while, I'm sure. <laughs> sure of it. Most of the victim stories are very similar to this one, so like I said earlier, I'm not going to go into detail for each victim. I just wanted to give an idea of what their lives are like uh, for those who didn't read the book. And mm-hmm. a lot of them are so similar. So that It's similar. like it just happens over and over and over again. Yeah. Just down the wrong path is awful. There was a letter in- included in the beginning of the book that I found really interesting and I wanted to mention. Anne received it from one of the many women who worked downtown Seattle and had encounters with the GRK. The woman described being picked up to go to a party, but instead finds herself trapped in a terrifying situation. And although the John had showed her pictures of strangled women, and had a gun to her head, for some reason he returned her to town without any physical harm, though certainly she had psychological trauma from that. Later on in life, she recognized his picture in the paper. She describes him as a pretty average guy, not too tall or too heavy, just a guy. Just a guy. And it's so true. Just blends in. Yeah. There's, yeah, in a crowd of people, he's not going to stand out. No. And that's part of the reason why he was able to get away with this for decades. Decades. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. Back to our timeline. August 12, 1982, another body was found in the river, this one just a quarter mile south of where Wendy was discovered. She was identified right away as Deborah Lee Bonner because of her fingerprints in police records. The 22-year-old sex worker was last seen July 25, 1982. Here is where we were introduced to Detective Dave Riker as he had been assigned to the case. Hey, Dave. Yay, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the first two victims didn't have any links other than, obviously, their body sites uh, and then the type of work they were in. 
So I was surprised that the homicide investigation had interviewed almost 200 people within the first week. We don't see that very often in these kind of no. situations. Like, I was really surprised. Yeah. That's like, crazy. I know. It's like, a lot of times, unfortunately, it's like, oh, well, nobody's going to be looking for them. They yeah. put themselves into this situation. Yeah, and like, it's awful. But they lack the compassion. For yeah. Them. But I love that they interviewed 200 people. That's wild. Like, yes. That's why it. we say, yay, yay, yay Dave. <laughs> Three days later, on August 15th, a treasure hunter found something unexpected in the waters, which, honestly, <laughs> treasure hunting in the water sounds pretty fun. Yeah, but maybe not in this case. Um, he found two still figures floating beneath the surface. Of course, they were dead bodies. Yeah. Weighed down by heavy rocks placed on their breast and abdomen. It's so strange. It is. And I don't think I've really heard that in other cases before. No. Right? Yeah. It's very strange. Dave Reichert and Patrol Officer Sue Peters were at the scene. Major Dick Kraske, commander of the Major Crimes Unit, was called as well, and he had previously worked on the Bundy case. He, I'm sure, was hoping that he didn't have to go through that yeah. whole thing again. again. But he did. <laughs> yes. This part was already really interesting to me, with finding the two bodies in the river and how they were found, um, how they were submerged and everything, but it gets crazier. Uh, Riker was so focused on the bodies in the river that his foot slipped in the grass, and he almost stepped on a third victim. Can you imagine? No. Oh I my just god. kind of gagged a little bit. You gagged? <laughs> oh my god, I can't imagine. So, there was a young girl, hidden in the thick vegetation, who had been strangled by ligature, and which is another theme that we'll see throughout. Throughout, yeah. Yeah. The killer must have been very comfortable with the area to carry three bodies down a steep, slippery riverbank and also take the time of positioning the boulders on top of the first two victims. Something must have happened, though, for him to leave the third girl in the grass after taking such careful maneuvering to hide the first two victims at the mm -hmm. bottom of the river. We don't know what he was interrupted by, if it was someone or something, or if he was just simply exhausted. To me, it makes more sense that he was interrupted because it doesn't make sense that he would just be exhausted and stop what he's doing like why wouldn't he place the body at least in the river it would have sped up decomp and would have removed evidence and maybe even like took that victim away from the other two victims exactly. right and if, just, he was, if he was tired he could have sat down he could have had a nap right like whatever he was comfortable i think he was interrupted by somebody totally her dog yeah exactly it doesn't make sense any other way. To me, at least. Yeah. What do I know? <laughs> so who were these girls? The first was identified by her fingerprints. 31-year-old Marcia Faye Chapman. She lived on the Strip and failed to return to return to her three children on August 1st. So fun fact. Mm -hmm. Skin slippage caused by long immersion in warm water along with decomp makes it very difficult to take fingerprints. Mm -hmm. Because as the body decomposes, hand and finger skin loosens so much that it can be slipped off like a glove. So, <laughs> to get a semi-decent print, pathologists sometimes have to sever the skin at the wrist mm -hmm. and then slip their own damn hands into the glove and press the soggy finger into an ink pad. Yep. Oh. My. <laughs> God. I'm so sorry to laugh at that, but it's just wild. I think pathologists are amazing, but damn, damn. <laughs> Do you think that's how Buffalo Bill holds hands? 
you out there. Do a All picture right. it. Yeah. <laughs> Put that image in your head. <laughs> Sorry. Anyways, get back to the story. Back to, you know, lighten things up a little yeah. bit because it gets dark. It's heavy. Yep. Also, I thought it was really interesting that she was so much older than the other victims. Like I said, she was 31 years old, but she was also known as tiny. So yeah. I'm assuming that it was just her appearance. Body type. Yeah, body type. Yeah, she must have appeared to be younger than what she actually was. Mm -hmm. The two victims that were in the water had been symbolically raped, which the detectives had a few theories on. So this part is pretty fucked up, so I apologize in advance. The women had triangular-shaped stones inserted into their vaginas so tightly they had to be surgically removed. And that is not fun to say out loud, but these weird details are pretty important, I think. They are. Yeah. That's what makes this case not so average like people think is. Yeah. So being a fan of criminal minds, I thought right away that this likely had something to do with an impotence issue, which, sidebar, I was really struggling to figure out the word impotence while writing this, and all I could think was empathy, <laughs> which sounds so funny. It is not a word as far as I'm aware. So anyways, my search history now looks very strange because I had to Google looking for the word intense, <laughs> which is so strange. But also, to sidebar my sidebar story, this makes me think about searching for weird medical things on Google. Yes. Yes. I do this all the time, and I have one particular time that was hilarious. When I was going to school at Nate, and I was in, I was in the veterinary medical assistant program, mm -hmm. we're learning about all the weird medical things, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're learning about cattle and we were kind of extensive practice, so I, you know, I wanted to look into that kind of stuff more and have a good understanding about it. But we were talking about prolapses, and it's specifically like uterine prolapses, which are awful. It's a thing. It's a thing. So I don't know. For some reason, I was like, I need to know what this looks like. So I put you it into Google. Not. I did. <laughs> the worst part was I didn't specify cattle. No. <laughs> yeah. No. yeah. I oh. had the worst pictures. The worst. Like, they're ingrained in my head. Oh, terrible. Yeah. I know, it's messed up, but I just want other people to feel my pain because <laughs> I had to experience that. So, yeah, for our listeners, if you want to Google it, Google cattle uterine prolapse. Very important. And so that, yeah, now I know. Whenever I Google a medical issue, I specify the species. That is important. Yes. So take away anything from this podcast. <laughs> take away that. <laughs> Be diligent. Yes. Details are important because yeah. you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> so anyways, Michelle, do you think I was on the right track with my criminal mind theory and what this act could have symbolized? You actually, actually were. Cool. Um, they thought that the killer maybe couldn't get up mm. for lack of a better term, it is an impotence, whatever, um, and got mad. So yeah. instead, he used the rocks as a crude substitute, which horrible, yeah. like, gross. Just, I hate you. Yeah. Um, it could also have been a way to denigrate his victims, and I had to look it up. Um, denigrate means to blacken someone's reputation. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know thought process on that, because these are sex workers, so their reputation is pretty tarnished. Yeah, it's so, so true. But maybe, like, he thinks so little of them. these people that he wanted to make sure the rest of the world yeah. thought the same as what, yeah. what he did. And their other thought was that it could have meant that the killer was a woman. Yeah. Which so weird. 
I would be curious to learn about that thought process yeah. and their reasoning on that one because I cannot wrap my head around a woman yeah. doing that. Yeah. I mean, I have this pretty messed up stories, but so I guess it makes sense, but uh, uh, come on. So, never know. Never Gotta think about all the possibilities. Yeah, it's possible. Mm-hmm. All right, so the second victim from the water was identified as 17-year-old Cynthia Hines, who went by the name of Cookie. She lived on the streets and worked the Seattle Strip, and she felt safe doing this as she had a male protector, which was a pimp. But in reality, he couldn't do shit. Mm-hmm. The last time he saw Cookie was August 11th. Mm-hmm. The moment that she gets into a vehicle with a stranger, it's over. It's gone. What is he going to do? do? Yeah, so she's not protected. The third victim found that day was identified when a sketch of her face was published, and her family realized that she had not come home and why she had not come home. The girl in the grass was Opal Charmaine Mills, barely 16 years old. In the book, there seemed to be a larger focus on Opal in comparison to many of the other victims. I noticed that. Yeah, totally. So her brother, Garrett Mills, provided a a really great look into their family, childhood, and their close relationship between the two siblings, which is really heartbreaking. Yeah. They're poor families. Just kills me. Opal was not known to be a sex worker, though her new acquaintance was. August 12th was the last time Opal was seen. She was leaving work, or leaving for work, to paint houses with her new friend, Cynthia Mills. Opal was considered boy crazy and fell for guys almost instantly. I only mention that because she could have been so easily manipulated by a persuasive man offering things like freedom, money, adventure. Yeah. This is just five victims in just one month. In a month. One month. That's insane. Like, I feel like we do not hear that very often. No. But the public wasn't even worried about it. To them, this only affected sex workers, lowlights, hitchhikers. They figured them and their loved ones would be just fine. But the crazy thing is, sex workers, they weren't as worried either. Like, I think they thought about it, but they had to keep doing this. They had they to. Didn't, they didn't really have a way out. So they just kept doing it. They thought they would, you know, be safe. They would talk to each other, but they weren't really safe. <laughs> no, they didn't really have any other option. I personally believe that there's no way the GRK started with these five victims. In most cases, serial killers tend to tend to start out slower, yeah. and then they accelerate as time goes on. Mm-hmm. This is just full blown like one right after the yeah. other, bam, bam, bam. Like there's no way he just started with these, and we're just like, hey, I'm gonna do this all the time. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, right? No. Okay, so I definitely think there were more victims at this point. We just likely will never know their stories. No. A quote from the book reads. Validating disappearances and identifying true victims was as difficult as finding beads from a broken necklace, dozens of them rolling on the floor and becoming lost in crevices and under desks and cabinets. Who could ever know how many there had already been or how many there were yet to be found and restrung into a strand that connected them all? Damn. (laughs) Amazing. That's some writing. (laughs) I think that puts such a beautiful picture in your head of what they're dealing with. Like when I, I listened to it as an audiobook first, and when I heard that statement, I was like, I need to write this down. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that really describes what was happening here. <laughs> so we have gone over so much already, but we aren't even close to being done. So we need to speed things up here. Yeah. Here is a list of the rest of the victims that went missing in 1982. Giselle Laverne, 17. Mary Bridget Meehan, 18. Terry Renee Milligan, 16. Casey Lee, 16. 
Deborah Lorraine Estes, 15, Linda Jane Rule, 16, Denise Darcel Bush, 23, Sean Summers, 18, Shirley Marie Sherrill, 19, Becky Marrero, 20, and Colleen Renee Brockman, 15. Holy shit. <laughs> Holy shit. We're up to 16 victims already. Awful. Mm-hmm. 16 known victims. Yeah, no kidding. There could be so many more that are yeah. not reported or not connected, whatever the case may be. Yeah, there could be so many more. So with so many victims, there must be some suspects by now. You hope. You would hope. Of course, boyfriends and husbands were checked out first. Always a good idea. Always a good idea. It's always the husband. <laughs> not in this case, but it's always the husband. <laughs> but they had all been cleared. So let's see who else is out there. There, then there was uh, Melvin Wayne Foster. Oh, Melvin. Melvin, an unemployed taxi driver who prided himself into the spotlight, and uh, he wanted to help with the investigation. Uh, he wanted to provide information on some of the victims, and he seemed to be consumed with interest about this investigation. Red flag. <laughs> Red flag. <laughs> he claimed to know five of the victims, but then later denied it. He also failed a lie detector test. And as we all know, some serial killers like to insert themselves into the investigation, so yeah, like we said, red flag. flag. <laughs> uh, he's such a funny guy. <laughs> yeah, no, quit laughing. <laughs> we also looked at a dude named uh, John Norris Hanks. He was previously convicted of murder and was a prime suspect in six other unsolved murders in California. All women had been strangled. He was arrested for assaulting his wife in Seattle after he bound her ankles together and choked her unconscious. Although all of this info looked good, he seemed to have solid alibis for the Green River murders. So that just leaves us so far with the big Melvin. Melvin. <laughs> Barbara Cubic Patton. Oh, I love she, her. Oh, man. I do, too. <laughs> she was a wacko. <laughs> she would eventually join forces with Melvin. What a great duo. Fantastic. Love it. She was a psychic slash private detective who also liked to insert herself into the investigation, often calling in with visions or tips. She also did her own detective work by going downtown Seattle to question people and even going to the homes of victims' families, such as Opal's. Can you imagine Opal's poor family, right? To sidebar this, I hate this so much. Mm -hmm. I recently went down the rabbit hole of the Ariel Castro's Cleveland House of Horrors case. Mm -hmm. And that's the one where he kept three women captive for over 11 years. It's messed up. Such such a good story, Mm -hmm. but it's the worst, honestly. So one of their mothers was basically told by a psychic that her daughter was dead in a body of water somewhere. And so her mom gave up hope and ended up passing away before her daughter was discovered to be alive. And it's so heartbreaking. So that's why I particularly don't like the psychic people. No. They're entertaining, but no. No. And didn't, <laughs> um, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Barbara just give her tips after they really stepped to the media? Yeah, and they were always really big. Yeah, always by water, by trees, or by mountains. It's like, You're in yeah, Seattle. It's right? Seattle. Of course. Like, that's not very helpful. And that's where all the other victims have been found. Right? So... so Thanks, tips. Right? Ugh. Yeah. So anyways, Melvin eventually wanted out of the spotlight. He didn't think it was fair that he was being investigated. Oh, oh the poor guy for Melvin, right? You put yourself into the situation. What do you expect? Exactly. 
right? And he's just like, oh, it's just trying to help. And he's like, well, you're creepy. That's weird. Man. So weird. Um, and we'll talk about the pictures in the book later on, but seriously, there's a picture of Melvin in the book. It's the best. It's like my favorite picture ever. So you should probably Google. Google looking for this picture of Melvin Wade Foster, and he's just sitting so nicely in a chair, just posing. Yeah, super being cool. Just being a creepy creep. So super cool. So anyways, yeah. not surprisingly, Riker continued to keep an eye on this guy. Oh, yeah. Um, also, Detective Dave Riker, he is a resident badass. Absolutely. Yeah. We learn in the book that earlier in his career, he got his throat slashed while on duty. And continues yeah. to do this job, right? Oh, my God. Yay, Dave. Yay, Dave. <laughs> Um, so at this point in the investigation, it's been six months and six known victims. So the FBI's John Douglas from the Behavioral Sciences Unit was brought in to create a profile for the person behind these horrible acts. Douglas's profile looked something like this. Victims were either prostitutes or street people with no preference for age or race. Killer might be a cop or impersonating a cop. Suspected that it was one man who was comfortable at the crime scene location believed the killer felt no remorse and felt that the victims deserved to die. Also believed that the killer was not seeking power, publicity, or recognition. Lived, worked, hunted, or fished near the Green River. Highly mobile and drove a conservative vehicle at least three years old, probably in an ill-cared-for van or four-door car. Prior criminal or psychological history. Family background that included marital discourse between mother and father and was likely raised by a single parent. His mother attempted to fill the role of both parents by inflicting severe physical and mental pain on him. He had difficulty in school and was likely a dropout with average or slightly above average intelligence. Probably attracted to women, but felt burned by them. Seeks prostitutes because he is not the type of individual that can hustle a woman in a bar. He would be in relatively good physical shape, somewhat of an outdoorsman, expected to be in an occupation that requires more strength than skill like a laborer or maintenance, doesn't mind getting dirty, and he's a beer drinker and likely a smoker, Caucasian, mid-20s to early 30s, but cautioned against eliminating older subjects because there's no burnout with such murderers, nocturnal and a cruiser, revisits body sites and follows newspaper accounts and has some flipped out for posterity and for fantasy and embellishment, and fears being detected. I don't want to give anything away, but damn, I know. That's wild. This is why I've loved behavioral profiling since I was like in middle school. I know, it's amazing. It's wild. I love it. (laughs) And also one of my favorite things about true crime is when we get to take a look into the the killer's childhood Mm -hmm. and try to find answers as to why they turned out the way that they did. Mm -hmm. So in the book, we get some great insight about the boy still not using his name. Did we say that we're not using his name? I don't think we did. I don't think we did. But we're not. Um, it's a long time into the book before. Yeah, like over his half the name is mentioned, which is great. Yeah, because fuck him. Yeah, and it's all about the victims for like majority of the book. So and I love that. Eighty-two. So, yeah, it's really good. Mm-hmm. So we will call this person the bully. At the and moment. I think eventually he turns into the man. Yeah, he does. It's kind of like hard to you know, switch over. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like a weird integration, but we'll figure it out. It makes sense. It will. Yeah, you'll see. So he was a strange child and was very slow. He didn't feel like he fit in well with his family because there was nothing special about him. In school, the boy struggled with dyslexia, 
they didn't actually use these words to describe it, but it was pretty apparent. Mm -hmm. And at home, he struggled with bedwetting. When this happened, his mother would become angry and would scrub him in the tub, which is really gross. gross. The only time he felt cared about is when his parents thought he had drowned, and this made him feel somewhat better. But he had a laundry list of other issues. He had allergies, and his parents would call him filthy because, you know, his nose would run. And he couldn't orient himself, and this would get him lost, and then his parents would get angry. There also were school bullies that would beat him up in the alley. And this, too, angered his father, who once said, If you come home one more time beat up, I'll beat your ass myself. That sounds like a stand-up guy. Yep. And he probably did. Honestly. Probably. Eventually, his dad taught him how to fight, in which he became really good at, and this pleased his father. He became good at pinning his victims down to the ground, and that Ugh. gives me the chills. That's not Yuck. old skill that you usually talk about. No, I don't like it. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways, it's just, his childhood, it really paints a picture here. It does. Like, he only gets positive reinforcement when he's almost dead, or he's hurting other kids. Otherwise, he's filthy, he's gross, he's disgusting. Yeah. He's dumb, he's not special, and all that stuff. So, yeah. no wonder he turned out the way he did. Right. So, of course, with this encouragement uh, from his father, when you know he beats up children and pins them to the ground, he becomes fascinated with violence. And at the age of eight, he starts bringing fire. Eight. I know. I keep, like, having to remind myself that he's, like, a tiny man at this point. It's messed up. I would lose my mind. <laughs> Could you imagine? Okay, I will say that I've always been a pirate myself. <laughs> But in a, I think it's much different. It, yeah. I grew up, you know, in the backwoods, really far away from other people. It's just, you know, cows of sticks. Yeah. Not houses or anything weird like yeah. you would do. Yeah. So much different. Just want to throw that out there. <laughs> no, no, I have to justify, justify myself. Like, <laughs> I am you. Yeah. <laughs> Sir, I'm not hiding anything. <laughs> All right, let's jump back to where we were before, January 1983. The Green River Task Force was continuing their investigation, the same place where the TED Task Force was previously held. Yeah. So for Ted Bundy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Damn it. Stuck <laughs> in that dot- room again. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I'm stuck in this room forever. <laughs> uh, Dave Riker and Faye Brooks from the Sex Crimes Unit, Sex Crimes Unit fielded most of the incoming calls. And the number of missing women continued to climb. Here is a list of the victims that went missing in the first half of the year. Elma Ann Smith, 18. Dolores Williams, 17. Sandra K. Gabert, 17. Kimmy Kai Pitzer, 16. Gail Lynn Matthews, 24. Marie Melbar, 18. Martina Teresa Offerly, 19. Cheryl Lee Wims, 18. Constance Elizabeth Nolan, 20. Carrie Ann Willis, 16. Kelly K. McGinnis, 18. Kelly Ware, 23. And Carol Ann Christensen, 22. So I ended with Carol Ann because it was not right away clear if she was a GRK victim, and I wanted to discuss why. So her body was discovered a few days after she had gone missing, and it was very clear that the killer had staged the body. So she was lying on her back in a half-sitting position with a brown grocery bag over her head, hands folded across her stomach and topped with ground sausage meat. On her throat were two dead fish, cleaned and gutted trout. 
and an empty bottle of wine was placed across her lower abdomen. It was all very strange. So strange. None of the other victims said anything like that. No. So Carol Ann also didn't fit the victim memo. She was not a sex worker, and she was not found near the Green River or the Pacific Highway. She was, however, strangled by ligature, and later it was discovered that she lived and worked right in the kill zone. That leaves us off in mid-July and with 29 victims. It has only been a year since this all began. Women were going missing rapidly, and bodies were being discovered slowly. Continuing with the rest of the victims in 1983, a set of remains were found, but only to be known as bones. The rest of the victims included April Don Butlum, 17, Deborah May Abernathy, 26, Tracy Ann Winston, 19, Maureen Feeney, 19, Yvonne Shelley Antosh, 19, Mary Sue Bello, 25, Pammy Avent, 16, Patricia Ann Osborne, 28, Delise Louise Wager, 22, Kimberly Nelson, 20, Lisa Lorraine Yates, 19, and then there was just two more that we know of in 1984, Mary Exeta, 16, and Sydney Smith, 17. And I really hope I got all of the victims and I pronounced their names correctly. Yeah, I want to give them all <laughs> their time and their... Be respectful. Be respectful. Between all of these murders, investigators thought they had discovered a pattern. Victims were disappearing a week apart and almost always on weekends, but the pattern didn't continue for long. Also, only a small amount of bodies were being discovered. So somehow the killer was doing a great job of picking dumping sites. A quote from the book reads, He had left most of the bodies thus far discovered unburied, hastily covered with tree branches or debris. He didn't appear to care anything about them. He just threw them away like broken dolls. That's true. Yeah. So once again in the book, we are able to take a brief look into the past of the killer. At 13 years old, the boy was still wetting the bed, still behind in school, and still behind socially. His mother continued the gross scrubbing in the tub thing, and those were his first sexual experiences. Gross. He also learned from his mother that masturbation was one of the worst sins, even worse than rape. F you, mom. Yeah, gross. You suck. You're That's a terrible all. human. That's all I can say. So, of course, he became a creep. He was a window peeper and a frauder, which apparently means... One who rubs in French. Gag. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I have a few French friends. I mean, we're in Canada, so mm-hmm. I know some French people. So I figured I should probably confirm that. So I texted my friend Shannon, and I asked her if the word frotter in French means one who rubs. And she said yes. She said it can also mean rub like you can frot your floor. So I guess context is important. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I, I thought that was kind of funny, so yes. I wanted to include that. Yes. <laughs> because, yeah, it's going to get really dark here right away. It is. So, <laughs> just trying to lighten the mood. Because this piece of garbage also started hurting animals. Ding, ding, ding. You know what that means? That is the final piece that makes up the McDonald triad, or the triad of evil. Yep. Sure does. Uh, and yeah, I'm sure 99% of our listeners know what that means, but if you wouldn't mind explaining, Michelle, what am I talking about? So, Wikipedia <laughs> defines the triad of evil, also known as the triad of sociopathy or the homicidal triad, is a set of three factors that has been suggested if all three or a combination of two are present together 
to be predictive of or associated with later violent tendencies, particularly with relation to serial offenses. Psychologists today debate this theory a bit because forensic psychiatrist Jan McDonald's research was done on a very small control group in 1963, so they question its accuracy. But as far as I'm concerned, it's a thing. It's a thing. It's pretty much across the board. Yeah, we see it all the time. Yeah. And it's funny that I didn't even know that it was being questioned because I was just like, oh yeah, it's a fact. It's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you looked that up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and now I will briefly explain this part, but trigger warning, animal abuse. This kid had issues. Yeah. Yeah. He did. Uh, he was always angry and nothing changed that, even beating up other kids. So one day he was home alone and he was mad and he got a horrible idea. I hate this part. Yep. He forced the family cat into a camping cooler and shut the lid tightly. He made himself wait until the next day to check on it. Of course, the cat had suffocated, and this pleased him. His anger subsided, at least for a little while. I hate him so much. There's the chills again. Yeah. Yeah. Killing made him feel strong and important. He also was compulsive and did things like break windows just because he picked up a rock. Shithead. Yeah, totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. So picking up rocks made him break windows. Well, apparently having a knife makes him stab people. He went bad, right? And spoons make people bad. Right? Totally, yeah. <laughs> That's just how it works, right? So, he was on his way to a junior high dance, and he pulled a six-year-old boy into the bushes and stabbed him once in the kidney. He wasn't worried about the boy dying. He was worried that the boy would live and be able to identify him. Fortunately, the boy did live, Unfortunately, he did not know who stabbed him. I hate him so much. Right? He's 13. 13. What the hell? I'm not supposed to hate 13-year-olds. I know. They're supposed to be innocent and having fun. Right? And, you know, exactly. not stabbing I remember tiny humans in the bush. Right? Like, middle school dances, those were the best. So much fun. Now they're kind of ruined. A little bit. Yeah. So, the boy was discovering that death excited him. He was fascinated by a boy that drowned in a nearby lake, and when a woman who was strangled with the cord of her bathroom uh, when she was walking around the block to cool off, which happened really close to his house. So I feel like that had some type of connection to his later killings. Yeah, because he so. killed everybody by strangulation. By strangulation with ligature, mm -hmm. specifically. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty messed up that that carried through mm -hmm. his life, and that was such a big focus for him. The investigation changed in November of 1983 when the new sheriff decided that it was time to change things up. Finally, they realized they needed more money and more personnel. No way! Right? We only have, like, how many victims at this point? Over 20. Oh, yeah. Dick Kraske was replaced with the new commander, Frank Adamson, because Kraske had not caught the killer yet. So, well, you know, probably could have had some more help. Yep. Yeah, some more money. Great. Funds would be nice. He was working at such a disadvantage, it's not surprising. They originally only had five detectives on the task force, and to make things worse, a power surge erased all of their data that was sorted uh, on a computer. Remember reading this part out I know. to my husband. I was like, you work on computers. Right? And so do we. And this is oh my in the God. 80s. Oh my God. And he was that like, that sucks. I can't even imagine how stressful that would be. Yeah. Because not only are they now trying to go back, and replace the information that they lost, the killer is still active. Active. And taking women at an insane rate. Yeah. Like, they're just trying to play catch-up, and, oh, my God. And they must have felt like they were drowning. drowning. Like, how did they even go into work? 
Right. I don't understand. I like, want to. Nope, I don't think so. Back in September, they received an interesting letter titled, Going About Catching the GRK. It was written in shaky handwriting and had lots of spelling errors. We will likely never know if this was from the real killer. It did mention that he was dating many, <laughs> we bolted air quotes, <laughs> dating many sex workers and not hurting them. So then they would go back and tell the others that he was an okay dude. And I have heard that he actually did this. I've heard that too. Yeah, the real GRK killer wanted to make it known because sex workers would talk to each other. Talk to each other. He wanted to make it known that you yeah, nice guy. Yeah, so go tell all your friends. So that's pretty cool. Um, and then another letter was received in February 1984. This one was typed on a typewriter and was more of a coded message, which are kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Honestly, yeah, that's yeah. pretty wild. <laughs> So on the outside of the envelope, it had a note that said, very important. So spelled what? wrong, I guess. Spelled wrong. I-N, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And the letter was written with no spaces. So at first glance, it seemed like it did not make any sense at all. So they started to try to pull it apart, figure out what it said. I mean, mm-hmm. it still didn't make a whole lot of sense at times. So many errors and weird words to determine. There. But eventually they were able to break up the letter enough to get some information from it. Uh, and so, again, like I said, they were not sure if this was from the GRK, but it did contain some unpublished information, such as, quote, one black in river had a stone in vagina. Why? And it also mentioned the specific type of wine and the fish found on one of the victims. The victim that they didn't think was connected. Right, exactly. But still, some detectives were not convinced this was legit. And so, then he signed it as, call me Fred. Yeah, this is so weird. Call me Fred. Weird. Why? <laughs> I want to call you Fred. I know. I want to know your real name. Yeah, can you just let us know who you are? I'm really interested to know why some of the detectives didn't think that this was the real killer. Um, do you think that it was like newer detectives that didn't have that information because it got erased on their computer? Oh, maybe they didn't think like that. Or are they just like... But I feel like that's a pretty big detail. And they, yeah. they withheld the details about the, the yeah. stones. Yeah, totally. Because that... With specifically, they wanted somebody to be like, hey, yeah, what about the stones? And they'd be like, hey, you're <laughs> our guy. <laughs> exactly. So I thought that was really strange, but I think, I guess maybe it was partly because they profiled the guy and mm-hmm. they thought that he was not the type of person to come forward to mm-hmm. media and try to be a part of the investigation or reach yeah. out to the detective. Yeah. So I feel like maybe that would be the reason. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It's strange. I don't know. In 2003, Anne Rule discovered an envelope that she had since April 1984 that was almost identical to this last letter. So oh, that, I forgot about that. I know, it's weird. Um, but unfortunately, there was nothing inside the envelope, and she wasn't sure if there ever had been, or if it just got lost in her paperwork, which is kind of, right. it's kind of depressing. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's just eerie that there's a call. And send it to her, right? Especially, like, yeah, when you go into book signings, that kind of stuff, it would make sense that he would do that, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Quickly going back to the boy one more time, but now he is a young adult. After graduating high school at the age of 20, he joined the Navy. He had a military wedding with his first wife, Heather, and then he was shipped off for several months. Both began cheating, and they divorced less than a year later. So that was a great marriage. (laughs) He then married his second wife, Dana Brown, and they had a baby boy together, the poor child. I know. What mm-hmm. happened to that poor baby? Right. He had a steady job, though, working for Kentworth Trucking Company, painting big rigs. 
One part I found interesting in this section was when a friend of Dana's was describing their church experience. She said that he would often read scriptures aloud to the con- congregation. Congregation? Mm-hmm. You tell I'm not a, a churchy person. <laughs> These words are hard for me. <laughs> you did great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also, apparently, the pastor preached that women had no rights and they were to obey men. Dana's husband believed every word of it. So that's great. <laughs> nice. Yeah. There are actually, though, whole books in the Bible. Oh, yeah. That. Like, it's oh, totally. Horrible. But <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was, that was great. Problems started to arise when Dana did not get along with the mother-in-law, which doesn't seem surprising. <laughs> no kidding. Yes, you know, she kind of sounds like a bad person. Yeah. She wanted another baby, and he did not. He actually made her get her tooth tied. That's really hard to say. One makeup person get their tooth. Well, tied. actually, I can tell you <laughs> because she had a gastric bypass surgery to make her skinny because she was quite overweight and she had a lot of you know self conscious right. problems with that. So she had the surgery. It worked too well, mm-hmm. and if she didn't get it reversed, she could have died. Mm-hmm. So she was going under anesthesia, and he was like, "Hey, you need to get your tubes tied," and so she did. And like right after that. They divorced. And I mean, that's a relationship where they start obeying your husband, right? So yeah, I guess she would feel like she has to. Yeah. And it's like, well, I guess it makes sense. Like, you know, this will help our marriage and we're going, you know, under anesthesia already. Mm-hmm. So I guess that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, that was pretty crappy. She also began cheating on him and they divorced in 1981, which is... Right before, you know, all the 1982. Yeah, 1982 is when the really bad stuff started happening. Just throwing that out there. Yeah. Not too long after, in May of 1981, he moved in with a woman named Darla Bryce after they met at a Parents Without Partners group. Yeah, right. They seemed to have a fun relationship. And by that, like, all they did was was have sex all the time. Any weird places outside, in public, in public, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they seemed to really enjoy their relationship and didn't set off too many red flags for her or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But he wanted custody of his child, and she couldn't handle that. And he also he never told her that he loved her, and that really bothered her, so she left. Which, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you move in immediately together, you're together for a while, and then he's just like, no, I'm not going to acknowledge that. I'm going to bone me in the park. I'll <laughs> tell you I love you. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's true, though. So trying to wrap things up here. In spring of 1984, reports of missing women seemed to have stopped. In March, another cluster of bodies were discovered, so this put the number of found victims at 14. And just a reminder, that's just what they found know. victims that they knew were GRK. That's not the women that were missing. Yeah. Right. The task force looked at thousands of suspects at this point, but all were eventually cleared. By June of 1984, the official total GRK victims went up to 26. So that was a very short amount of time between 14 and then jumped to 26. Yeah. 18 were identified. The rest were all bones. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like we have mentioned Ted Bundy quite a few times already. Mm -hmm. And this is the real deal. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Ted wanted to help in the investigation, and he was interviewed on November 16th and 17th of 1984. He was sitting on death row at this point. 
Yes, in Florida. Yeah. yeah. And he was just like, hey, I'm not getting enough attention. Let me help. Let me help you. So, I'm a narcissist. <laughs> right? Only a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. He considered himself the expert on serial killers, of course. And honestly, he probably wanted to help the investigation for two reasons. One, like I said, he wanted the attention back on him again, of course. And two, he didn't want the Green River Killer to be his records. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, again, a totally narcissistic piece of shit kind of thing. Right? Yeah. Which later, like, the GRK killer was like, haha, at least I was the best at something. So yeah. he had the same so train of thought. Gross. It's messed up. The book says in the end, Bundy only offered theories that might be validated one day, but he couldn't lead detectives to the killer. I actually found this part kind of disappointing. Me too. Because they even said on the back of the book, whatever. Yeah. It even mentions that Ted Bundy was a part of the investigation to help oh, yeah. catch the killer. Which he was. But I get he it. Wasn't. But it was literally one page in the book. Yeah. And it didn't give them any information. They didn't even, from what I was looking at, and I was skimming at this part, yeah. <laughs> trying to put together this episode, but it didn't look like it actually had any details about what he offered. No, and I think part of that would be and not wanting to put too much attention on Ted Bundy because it's not his story. True, right? but we've mentioned it so many times already that it's like, yeah, this is. I remember being so excited when I got to I that know. point in that book and I got to work and I was like, I'm at Ted's part, right? No, like, what is he going to say? And it was like a page. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, oh, that was kind of let, let down. Oh, well. Yeah, I thought it was going to be more interesting, mm-hmm. but what can you do? Yeah. <laughs> Move it on. Move it on. Since it seemed as though women were no longer going missing, it must have meant that something drastic had changed in the killer's life. And it appears that that was true as it seemed that he had gotten custody custody of his child. The boy was getting older and was becoming more aware of his surroundings. And so I think it was harder for him to get away with things. Yeah. I think his son is paying attention his to what Dan is doing. I think they did say his son was along for the ride. Or one of the one killings. Of and that yeah. just makes me want to go throw up. It's awful. It doesn't sound like he saw anything bad, but he was yeah. in the car. They left the car, and one of them came back. Hopefully he doesn't remember any of that, but I'm sure just knowing that his dad did. Yeah. Probably messed him up. Fair enough. I sure hope he has good counsel. Yeah. Me too. Mm-hmm. Also, the man was getting increasingly social and was finding female companionship from the parents without the records group. It's kind of strange. It is. I thought that was really weird. Like, yeah. I just expected things to get, like, much worse for him. But he's like, oh. But he was like, oh, I get to talk to women. And being satisfied with doing normal human things. Yeah. It's so strange. But, of course, he was still a creep. And he would make women at work very uncomfortable. And was once reprimanded for sexual harassment, which he just could not really course. Right? He's like, can you believe this? And all the women were like, yeah, yeah, you'd be creepy. <laughs> yeah, you're giving people massages without their permission. You weirdo. People don't like that. Hands <laughs> to yourself, man. No, I am not a touchy-feely person. No, people touch me, like, smack you, right? That's gross. <laughs> <laughs> so part one ends with a chilling conversation he had with his neighbor, Nancy, that he and he would often give her rides home mm-hmm. from her job. They didn't work together, but she worked nearby, they lived nearby. So he would drive her home sometimes. And she said she had always felt safe with him until one night he asked if if she wanted to go over to his place for a little bit. It's like whenever somebody's giving another person around, they're just like, oh, by the way, just got to pop home for a minute. 
Get no. out and run. No, get out and run. It, don't let that happen. Yeah. Just saying. It never goes well. It could have gone a lot worse than, you know, what it did. For it was sure. just, just creepiness. Mm-hmm. But this lady was a smart lady. So mm-hmm. she did everything exactly right. Mm-hmm. So he, at the home, they were having casual conversation. Mm-hmm. And that casual conversation led to the topic of the Green River Killer which was a pretty common thing that people were talking about all the time, so it didn't seem too weird right off the bat. But he became really serious and tense and asking strange questions like what she thought of the killer, what she thought of prostitutes, adding, don't you think we're better off without them? And like I said, Nancy was a smart lady. Mm -hmm. She caught on right away that something was really wrong and there was red flags everywhere. So she agreed with him. She said, yep. We sure are. At least the streets are getting cleaned up. Good for you, Nancy. Keep yourself safe. Yeah, no kidding. She's very smart. He also brought up the psychics, which was really interesting. Like, he was legit worried about the psychics. (laughs) So he was asking her if she thought they knew who the Green River Killer was. And she said that if they did know, they would never say. For one, the police wouldn't believe them. And two, they would be killed by the Green River Killer if they named him. Again, Nancy, you are so smart. So smart. He did press her a little bit more about his her thoughts on sex workers, such as, would you ever be a sex worker? Obviously, she said no, and that kind of stuff. Um, so Nancy brought up their families, saying, how could the families go on? They have small children. They have mothers. Like, you know, don't you think that would be upsetting? And he then got upset because he thought that she was now siding with the sex workers. So he asked, she, are you changing your mind? You agree with prostitutes now? And she said, of course not. I just think it's really sad when you think about the families. Mothers and fathers who never see their daughters again. Kids who never get to know their mothers. I just feel really sorry for them. He said, they're better off without them. And Nancy took a chance and said, do you really think that? And I thought this was really interesting. He paused for a little bit and then realized, oh, I'm giving this away a little bit too much. He said, no, of course not. Nobody deserves to die, right? Jerk. What a jerk. Ugh. Then the last thing that he said was so chilling. He said, you want to hear something funny? Ugh. 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 Uh, sure, I guess. <laughs> he said, I've been picked up by the FBI and questioned for eight hours about the Green River Killer. He was proud of that. He was like, they didn't catch they me. They didn't catch me. I just, oh, I don't know. I just got chills. I'm so happy that she was so smart in those moments. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because that could have ended up so badly. So bad. There are just some people that don't really pick up on social cues or, like, bodily posture, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Uh, but she really did. She, she was, did. like, she saw his body language and he was tensing up. He was, yeah. you know, it was quite clear that this is... Do you think this is different? Do you think at that point she should have gone for cops? Yeah. <laughs> I, I you think know she what? <laughs> but she did say at the time she she didn't quite connect the dots. She yeah. thought it was strange, but she just couldn't imagine that that person that she knew. The guy that gives her the ride home. Exactly. The nice guy down the block. She just could not picture him as the Green River Killer. Yeah. So that's where we leave off. That's where we leave off. That was the end of part one. That's heavy it's shit. So yeah. much. Thank you for sticking around for all of that. There's a lot of there's a lot to go over. Dark and twisty for yeah. us. Shit in there. Lots of dark and twisties. 
So yeah, that was fun. That was fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So what do you what do you feel up until this point about the book? Um, I am so surprised at how many more feelings I have talking about it out loud. Same here. Because like we've read it, we've read it, we've read it, we've written about it, we've yeah. talked about it together. But to sit here and like go through it detail by detail, mm-hmm. I have like goosebumps down my legs. Like, yeah. Same here. Like I've read over what I've written down so many times it like didn't even seem like words anymore. I mean, it meant nothing to me, <laughs> honestly. Like yeah. it was just like words on a paper. Reading it out loud, it's like, oh my god. Yeah. You this reading is awful. Those women's names. Oh my god. Like it was so hard. Just breaks my heart. And I wish I could have given them more time. But that's honestly what this book is for. It is. That's so for the victims and it's yeah. for their families and. I love Anne for that yeah. because I love We Are Done Part 1. We mm-hmm. do not know what this guy's name is. Exactly. I love that too. And I'm sure it's really hard because a lot of, you know, true crime people want to know who it is. They want to know all the details. And I'm totally like that. I am too. I get it. That's why I like the childhood. I really like to know all the details about the killer. Mm-hmm. I like to know why they do what they do. Exactly. So I'm sure it was really hard to just focus on the victims for so long. But right. it was honestly just the right to leave thing. him faceless. Yeah. I think lots of us know what his name is. Yeah. And maybe you and I do. Or totally. <laughs> but um, I love that he's he's nobody. He's yeah. nothing. He's exactly. Like he's referred to as so-and-so's husband or the boy. It's or, just yeah. like, you know, he's not that important. Yeah. He's a, he's a shitty person. He is a shitty, and shitty person. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's really great. Yeah. I'm really good that. She's yeah. a great person. She's a great person. She was. Yeah. So I guess that pretty much concludes what our feelings are about the book. So, yeah. Yeah. So, since we talked about some pretty gruesome stuff, let's end on a lighter note. Today's question is short and sweet. What is your favorite book? Oh, that's easy. And it's not a true crime book. No? The Harry Potter series. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) No. I'm sorry. I'm kidding. Yeah, I mean, it's fine, I guess. (laughs) It's the one I've read over and over again. I know. You know, I'm going to read it to my kids. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's sometimes you it's fluff. Yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. It's a fluff. I mean, <laughs> this is my fluff. <laughs> <laughs> um, like we said in the past episode, mm-hmm. we both started reading Father Scuffler when we were really, really young. So that was one of the first books I read and one of the last books I read. So yeah. I definitely think that is one of my favorite books. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that one. Also, I love the next book that we're reading? Yes. Oh my god. Oh my god. It is so good. So, so good. I can't wait to share it with you guys. I'm not like, going to tell you yet. I'm writing that one and it's going to be Yeah. Fun. Michelle's covering another book that we're working on at the moment. Yeah. I did not expect to like it as much as I did. Yes. And that's all we will say. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Right. So, we want to hear your answers too. So, tell us what your favorite book is. You can uh, email us at murderandmerlot at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at Murder and Merlot Podcast, Facebook at Murder and Merlot Podcast, and Twitter at Murder and Merlot One. And uh, let us know what you thought about our first real big episode, right? Let us know. And honestly, I probably missed a lot of detail. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> there's so much detail. You did well. Well, thanks. I feel like that was a lot. And there's so much more stuff that I would have loved to include, but yeah. it just. Guys, it's not possible. Pretty yeah. sure the audiobook was like 20 hours long. Yeah. Like, it's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Anyways, you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, Apple, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean. I mean, 
you're already listening to us, so you know this stuff. And we will release part two of Green River Running Red on March 27th. So go ahead and finish this book. In the meantime, we will have a mini-sode for you next week. And, uh, and I just realized that we didn't think of a sign-off. Ah. So thanks for listening. Good night, nerds. Good night, nerds. <laughs> <laughs>